uh, in the Northeast may have a better day or at least an equivalent day to San Diego. So very good weather here where a lot of us live. I think you had uh, a speed today. Yep. Yep. Well, actually, I see a little warmer temperature now would be good for natural gas. So, but we're, we're very, very nice. Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's start. I'd like to go to Exhibit A, which is U.S. government revenues and expenses. For those without the 20-page handout, I'll try to talk through this issue. It appears to be the case that the Speaker of the House and the President of the United States have a deal, uh, which they'll work on. And when the President is back from his trip to Japan for the G7 on Sunday, they'll announce that they have agreement. And let's just look at these numbers and see how much room they have to maneuver. Total spending in 2019 was four and a half trillion dollars and total revenues were three and a half so in 2019 the year before the pandemic we ran a trillion dollar deficit the deficit went up a lot in 21 and 20 in 2021 because covid went to three trillion dollars in 20 and almost three trillion dollars in 21 expected to come down to 1.4 trillion this year, which is entirely too much. What happens is that the debt held by the public, not the 31 trillion, which is what they're arguing about the debt ceiling, but the debt held by the public, which doesn't include the debt held for social security trust fund and so on and so forth, is about equal to GNP. Our estimate for GNP this year is $26 trillion and the amount of debt held by the public is just about $26 trillion. Very important to not have that go up. That's 100%. The deficit this year is projected by the CBO to be $1.4 trillion from a trillion dollars in 2019. When you take out Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and defense and interest, the amount that you, the all other amount of spending in 2019 was $900 billion. This year is projected to be a trillion four. So the negotiators for the president and the speaker have 500 billion to work with. I think they can find 200 billion of saving and try to put a base on spending, you know, not go up by more than 2% or something like that, so that we will get to a point where our deficit declines and the amount of 
debt held by the public declines as a percentage of GNP. What does that mean for the investing environment? Creates a lot of less uncertainty. The Federal Reserve will continue to use quantitative tightening because during COVID, its balance sheet went from $4 trillion to almost nine, which is entirely too much. So, and that was quantitative easing, way overdone, caused the inflation or had a significant role in causing inflation. They've taken the Fed funds rate from nothing up to 5%, but the key thing they're doing is bringing that balance sheet down by about a trillion dollars a year, and that will continue. So will we have a recession? A recession is two quarters of real GNP decline, which we actually had in 22, two consecutive quarters, but it wasn't considered to be a recession because the unemployment rate was like three and a half percent. The unemployment rate is still very, very low. So maybe we have pretty flat GNP bordering on a decline in real GNP, but Maybe if the employment stays pretty solid, you know, we'll, we, we will even avoid a recession. Impact on the area I really know a lot about, oil and natural gas, you go to Exhibit B, I've redone these numbers a bit for demand. The problem with natural gas is that <clears throat> supply went up by five Bs a day from 95 to 100. That's because the price of gas averaged $6 last year. The price of gas this year averaged under $3. So that will start to flatten out, and it has. The other thing that happened to us is a pretty warm winter. So we lost about four Bs a day for the first, you know, the winter months of natural gas demand. But fortunately, for gas demand, power was up by about two. So it kind of helped offset that. If you look at the bottom of Exhibit B, uh, the forecast, uh, the, the future spread for 23, uh, if you bought your 23 gas in the middle of 22, you paid $5. If you bought your 23 gas today, you paid 280 So the price of gas has come down a lot. What we need to have happen is for it to get back into the 350 range and that is what the futures curve says, and we'll have to see. I think as each month goes by, we'll see whether that's coming to pass. On oil, which is Exhibit C, the world uses about 100 million barrels of oil and other liquids derived from natural gas primarily. Demand is supposed to go up by about a million barrels a day in 23. That's going to depend on China as the largest increase there. China will go up by, say, 600,000 barrels. So far, the end of the China lockdown has caused a lot of travel and consumer expenditure, but oil demand and other commodity demand is pretty flat. So we'll see as each month goes by whether that improves. China is the largest or the second largest oil consumer in the world at 15 million barrels a day. In the U.S., we're 20. Just to give you a sense of proportion, Europe is 14 and is pretty flat. Other Asia, 
away from India and Japan and China is 12, and that goes up a little bit. Everyone says when they're confronted by China not growing, oh, India will make up for it. Well, the Indian economy is way smaller, like a third the size of the Chinese economy, and their oil production is also a third. So India has the same population, but nowhere near the same amount of industrial and commercial activity that China has. Oil, as we can see on the bottom of page of, of Exhibit B, is not backwardated as much. If the current price last Friday was 72. The average for 23 was 71. The average for 24 was 68. So uh, the backwardation has gone away. I think an awful lot depends here on China and, and OPEC discipline. OPEC plus Russia has curtailed production by a total, just recently, by a million and a half barrels a day and by a total of three. So a lot holding oil at $70 can depend on OPEC discipline. That pretty much does it for the macro stuff. I just want to talk about, and I, I haven't rehearsed this with Mike or Jason, but it seems to me that the indices are really dependent on larger companies. And the two largest companies in the indices are Apple and Microsoft. If you turn to page one and two, they're not trading impossibly high. We measure value most of the time by what you're trading times free cash flow. And uh, last time I did Apple, I had it at around 30 times free cash flow and Microsoft at about 31 times free cash flow. We would, you know, if you're, if you're buying Apple and Microsoft, you'd rather have it lower. But those are not impossibly high numbers. The, now, an impossibly high number is NVIDIA, which is like over 100 times free cash flow. But there you have a lot of interest in the GPUs and being used to, you know, for these large language models that are behind the AI developments. If you flip pages here, and just say, well, you know, it's 30 times high. I'm just going to spend a couple of minutes flipping pages. AT&T and Verizon are both around 17 times free cash flow. MasterCard, those are great businesses. MasterCard and Visa, they grow and they have a kind of a duopoly. They're around 30 times free cash flow. The big retailers, Walmart, Target, they're around 30 times free cash flow. Exxon, Chevron, and Conoco are much lower, but subject to commodity pricing. The midstream companies are around 16 or 17 times free cash flow. The upstream companies, again, affected by commodities, around 9 or 10 times free cash flow. And that goes for both oil and natural gas, both page 11 and page 12. The big banks are around 10 or 11 times free cash flow. The manufacturing businesses, Caterpillar and Deer, really very strong businesses, around 20 times free cash flow. The health care companies we're going to talk about in a second. Pfizer, when you adjust for less vaccine sales this year, they're around 31 times free cash flow. Uh, the, the restaurant stocks, about 20 times, 20, 25 times free cash flow. Businesses that we can't do without, like FedEx in the United UPS are around 16, 17 times free cash flow. The healthcare 
providers, the insurers. United Health is about 20 times free cash flow. Uber, you know, a lot of us can't do without about 60 times free cash flow. So 30 times is not impossible, but any kind of a downdraft. Now let's just talk about debt ceiling because in 2011, they went right to the end and actually had to stop sending, you know, had to have federal employees not get paid and that kind of stuff. And the market went down 20%. So if you've always wanted to own more, more Apple or start a position in Apple or Microsoft and the president comes back from Hiroshima and the G7 meeting and there's some big bust up that might create an opportunity. But short of that, unless something else of a macro point of view, unforeseen thing happens or difficult to foresee thing happens, you know, the indices will probably cook along, in, you know, where they are buoyed by these very large cap companies like Apple and Microsoft. Any commentary on that, Mike or Jason? No, I, I don't know the stats, but I, I believe I've read that most of the gains had been in those mega cap companies and, and then the rest of the markets kind of muddled along. But, but nonetheless, the indexes are up. Yep. The way to try to achieve a good objective, which is double your money every five years, some part of your 10 or 12 stock portfolio is going to have to have more up in it, more up than, you know, the large cap companies. And one of the places to look for it is where there's a lot of change. We spent a lot of time on AI and especially NVIDIA, and we'll circle back and see if there's anything new there. But uh, Michael and Jason on their own and myself, to the extent I've had time, have been focused on healthcare pharmaceutical companies. So we go to page 15. And once again, for the people that don't have pages in front of them, the new, the new company here is BioNTech. The COVID vaccine, Pfizer basically went and used a vaccine that or capability had been developed at BioNTech, which is a German company, and made a deal where Pfizer provided the capital and the manufacturing know-how and whatnot. And the deal between BioNTech and Pfizer is that BioNTech gets about 35 to 40% of the uh, revenues. And the costs are probably only about 20% of the revenues. So Good deal for Pfizer, but good deal for BioNTech. The other messenger RNA vaccine was Moderna. Uh, Moderna didn't have much of a balance sheet, but U.S. government basically financed its build. What has happened, if you look down at the debt, net debt is basically cash. Moderna comes through it with about $10 billion of cash on hand. BioNTech is in euros, billions of euros. They come through with about $18 billion of, of, of euros on hand. If, if vaccines are needed, boosters or for vulnerable people, cash flows can dry up at Moderna and BioNTech. They're both predicting that their cash flow will be like a third of what it was in uh, sales and cash flow will be about a third of what it was in 22. And for the first quarter, that appears to be pretty much on target. 
uh, BioNTech, that would give BioNTech about $4 billion or 4 billion euros of revenues, the dollar being at around a dollar eight or something. So that covers their R&D budget, their SGNA budget, and they have a little bit of free cash flow. And so, you know, that it, it, it looks like an option on, on either continued needs for the vaccines or, or having some of their MRA technology translate into other pharmaceutical products. Same thing for Moderna. And Mike and Jason, who are spending more time on healthcare, have more time than I do and, and are way more confident, have gone through the, these two companies and and have a view on on how how successful they may be in, in developing other uses for this MRA technology. With that, I've pretty well exhausted what I know or what I can speak to. So I'm going to turn it over to Jason first to, first of all, correct any anything I may have said or and then take it from there. Yeah, you're, you're right in that the revenue that these companies are going to generate this year from the COVID vaccines and the boosters should offset their all their operating costs and, and R&D and SG&A budget. In my mind, I'm, I'm going to discount that to zero. I, I don't think in the future they're going to generate very much in the way of, of booster revenue. The way that they're thinking about it in the future is co-packaging a, a COVID vaccine with a flu vaccine. I, I think there's a lot of challenges in that, and, and both of those companies are, are doing it. But if you think about where you you typically go to get a, a flu shot. It's, you know, your grocery store, the local drugstore. But these mRNA vaccines require a cold chain and they have to be stored at, at very cold temperatures and they have a short shelf life. Whereas the the, the flu vaccine is a very competitive market and, and those are, are made to be shelf stable. So are they really going to penetrate that with adding on a, the COVID booster? Uh, I'm not sure. So to me, I'm going to discount that in the future. So so this year they get free R&D budget, but I, I wouldn't say that for next year. Yeah, it's an interesting point. And it'll be interesting to see what does everybody get the option for their health insurance company to pay for a COVID vaccine? Because it's a lot more expensive than a flu vaccine or this combo vaccine versus a standard flu vaccine. So and maybe it'll be specifically for at risk populations or something like that. So there, there could be cash flow there, but the promising part is what's in the pipeline. Right. And BioNTech was, was founded to, to create cancer vaccines, mRNA cancer vaccines. And, uh, and that's what they have been doing. And, that, and they've continued that through COVID, even though they used the COVID vaccine as kind of a, to finance all the other stuff. And then they've built up that 18 billion euro war chest that they're going to tap into to bring these things to market. And, they, and in that time, you referenced their balance sheet from before. Before before the pandemic, they had five hundred million dollars, and now they have eighteen billion. So they've got free non-dilutive financing <laughs> for for their whole pipeline, which they've grown tremendously. They've they've started a lot of drug development partnerships. They've just this year purchased the rights to three new three new treatments. So they've they've really grown their pipeline, and it, it gives them a lot more optionality in, in bringing drugs to market. And the, the key differentiator between those two companies is they both have a lot of cash, but the, the difference between the enterprise value of BioNTech is pretty low. So it's like $5 billion. 
versus Moderna, where it's it's much higher. I'd make the enterprise value over cash in Moderna about forty billion, and in euros, I'd make it around nine or ten billion in BioNTech. The other the other thing, if you take Jason's view that they have maybe one more year of getting their R and D covered by the remainder of demand for vaccines, Moderna has ten or eleven billion dollars of cash an R&D budget of $3 billion and an SG&A budget of a billion. So $10 billion goes away in about two and a half years, where BioNTech, similar numbers, probably has $2 billion of spending of, of euros and about $18 billion on hand. So that's nine years. So if, if, if the pipeline and the competence and the intellectual capability in each company is the same, I think you buy BioNTech rather than Moderna. But I'm getting way out of my area of expertise. So, and I think Mike, Mike and I are both counting on Jason to lead us through the, you know, a, an unfamiliar area here. I mean, Mike knows a lot more than I do. But Jason, uh, would you would you think that comparison of BioNTech and Moderna hangs together, or what's your view? Oh, that, that's that's the same conclusion that I'm coming to comparing these two. BioNTech has a, a, a lot of really promising treatments in the pipeline. Unfortunately, the furthest one along is that flu COVID vaccine. But when they get back to curing cancer, essentially treating cancer, their oncology pipeline's huge and the opportunity is is huge there as well. If you just kind of do some rough math on, you know, if 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 their treatments will command the same price as a, a course of chemotherapy, they're gonna they're gonna do really well in the future if if some of these trials are successful. And, and I don't doubt they will be. You know, chemo, chemotherapy is a pretty blunt instrument. It's it's taking a hammer and trying to kill the cancer before you kill the host. So, so some of these new new things are much more precision medicine. Deliver the deliver the. I mean, in some cases, the same kind of chemotherapy drug, the same toxin, but directly to the tumor cells versus you know just kind of bluntly in the body. Right. We shouldn't leave page 15 without talking about Lanthius, where Mike and Jason have made quite a lot of money uh, since the end of the year. I'll try to explain what I think is going on here. The upside is cancer-related, but rather than inserting something in your body that's going to kill the cancer, they, they prostate cancer, and it kind of lights up the cancer cells so that you can see them better, and that's really caught on. But before we uh, before we uh, switch, I, I want to switch back to AI just before the hours the half hour is over. But just a quick update on Lantius would be good. Yeah, I don't know if we touched on it before, but they they've got fast track designation on their on their the treatment versus the diagnostic. So linking linking a beta particle that radiates the tumor cells to to the protein that binds to the to that cell. So. Treating and treating the cancer versus just a diagnostic for it. No other real updates on on from a science point of view. From if they're gonna, you know, updates on on other trials. Essentially, can they can they diag can they diagnose other cancers? That's still something we're watching. Yeah, the only other thing to add is that first or first quarter results were pretty positive. Uptake of the Polarify diagnostic as a becoming standard of care for prostate cancer patients is it's happening faster than anybody expected. Right. And that's just a testament to it being in medicine. It's not necessarily, it has to be 10 X better than the standard, but it always helps 
you know, if you get to that order of magnitude level of better, it, you know, people flock to a new alternative. And uh, that's sort of where this thing seems to be. Right. And people have done studies on the, the slope of adoption curve and new treatments. And this is far outpacing what's expected. Excellent. We, we don't want to close the half hour without any updates from last week on AI and Especially, I, I think we've kind of decided, or I've decided, I'll let you guys take a pass that NVIDIA, despite its very high price, is the one that's going to benefit the most because everyone working with these large language models needs lots of GPUs. But that's a, you talk about blunt treatment, that's pretty blunt. But turn back over to the two of you for any updates. I mean, we still like NVIDIA, but the price today is, is very high. So I would be. I don't know. I, I'd, be, I'd struggle to put more money into it. I think the interesting things are going to come from Apple and Facebook in probably the next couple quarters. Jason, should we talk about our hypothesis on sure. Siri? Yeah, sure. Yeah, might as well. We, it'll <laughs> only take two minutes. But, you know, we, we're all aware of the fact that Apple's got an arrangement with Google where Google pays to be the default search engine. There's also been rumors that Microsoft was considering uh, bidding to be that replacement search engine on uh, with with their Bing search um, on the iPhone. And we think that was probably wrong, and we think it's more likely that Apple would have a underlying language model for which you might interact with Siri. And maybe Microsoft was bidding or lobbying to be able to provide its model uh, for those search results. So then we started thinking about what the other ones that would be important players there. And the other obvious one would be Facebook, because Facebook has this challenge due to app tracking transparency, some rules that Apple put together a while ago that seemed to really target negatively to to facebook but facebook has some of the best other otherwise the best uh large language models and if it were to be in that position it could technically receive the designation that apple uses called first party data or first party data provider so it would then again be able to do the type of ad targeting that it used to be able to do except probably even better and comply with what apple sees as important from a data security point of view. So it's, it's a little bit of an out there theory, but we think those two companies are probably going to be the key competitors for that, assuming it, mm-hmm. it comes to be. Yeah, and, and, and a third one would be Amazon. Yeah. Reason being, Facebook and Amazon, other than Google, have the, the biggest ad placement networks on the internet. So being first party to the data on the iPhone, all the you know, essentially all the, the communication through an iPhone, potentially, you're going to be able to do a lot of really interesting, I say interesting, I don't know, <laughs> from a privacy perspective, but a, a lot of really pointed ad targeting. And it, it'll be, and it, you saw how much that affected Facebook. I believe it was a billion dollars in revenue a quarter. Does that sound right? Oh, something like yeah. that. It was, yeah. it was, but it, it was a huge impact to Facebook and, you know, this is going to benefit them potentially more than that amount if if this is if this theory plays out. 
Meta and Amazon are on page four, and they're both, well, kind of missed, or at least speaking for myself, missed the boat on Meta. I never really liked the stock, and it got down under 100, and now it's over 200, so shame on me. I am a longtime Amazon stockholder, not very, not very productive in the last couple of years, but anything to get Amazon back on track sounds good to me. But next week, let's get off healthcare a little quicker and we'll spend more time on Amazon and Facebook and, and Apple. And with that, we're, uh, we're just about on target. So everyone stay healthy and be well, and we'll talk next week. Take care. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.